Welcome everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com or creativecommunityforpeace.com. Uh, it's up on the screen right there if you also want to sign up for our email list. Uh, we're glad, glad to have all of you today in our public square once again as we present Dispelling the Myths, a fantastic educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. Uh, I've really been looking forward to today's conversation as we have one of the great Jewish thought leaders of our time and talking to her always makes everyone smarter. Uh, feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. Uh, we just ask that you please leave the Q&A section for questions only and not for general comments so we don't miss anything. Feel free to always email us at info at creativecommunityforpeace.com uh, if you have any regular comments, not as, uh, particularly questions. Um, this week's guest is Dr. Inat Wilf. Born and raised in Israel, Dr. Wilf served as an intelligence officer in the Israeli Defense Forces and as a BA from Harvard, an MBA from INSEAD in France, and a PhD in political science from the University of Cambridge. She was a member of the Israeli parliament from 2010 to 2013, where she served as chair of the Education Committee and member of the Influential Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. She's also served as a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute, adjunct fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and was also foreign policy advisor for Vice Prime Minister Shimon Peres. She is considered one of the Israel's most articulate representatives on the international stage and is a leading intellectual and original thinker on matters of foreign policy, economics, education, Israel, and Zionism. She has written six books, including being the co-author of The War of Return, How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the Path to Peace, which is actually what we are going to be discussing today. I believe she has also just met with Henry Winkler in Israel today, so as you know, she is in very much in demand, welcoming not. Uh, how are things going and how was it hanging with the Fonz? Thank you. Uh, things are well. This was exciting. I spent a couple of years as a kid in uh, the U.S. Uh, from 79 to 81. And Tuesday night, we sat in front of the television to watch Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Three's Company. So... That was great. And he's wonderful. And it's actually his first visit to Israel. Amazing. So, amazing. Uh, yeah, I believe yeah. he's filming a movie there. So that's great to see people like him coming and visit. Um, but let's get to something a little bit more serious. So let's really start uh, at the beginning to really dissect, dissect this issue of the so-called right of return. Uh, to sort of set the table, I heard this question asked uh, of you before, and I thought it was a good way to kick things off. Uh, what is the story that Israel tells itself about the 1948 war? And what is the story the Palestinians tell themselves about that war? So uh, perhaps uh, the best way to look at the two stories is to look at someone outside uh, the Jews and Arabs of the land at the time and see what he said, because he got it right for both sides. Uh, this is Ernst Bevin, the British foreign minister after World War II. If you know anything about him, he wasn't a great lover of the Jewish people or the idea of a state for them. Uh, but he needs to explain to the British people why Britain is leaving the territory. 
Britain got the territory, the right to rule it uh, after the Ottoman Empire collapsed after World War I. And it basically receives a mandate from the League of Nations to rule the land on behalf of the Jewish people until the Jewish people uh, establish their state. So he goes to the British Parliament and basically says, we're giving up. We're, we're giving the mandate back to the UN, the heir of the League of Nations. And he says this, right. his majesty's government has come to the conclusion that the conflict in the land is irreconcilable. So he says irreconcilable. He says there's two groups in the land, Jews and Arabs. So there was never any question that those are the two groups. And he says the Jews have a priority. What's the priority for the Jews? They want a state. Simple. The Arabs have a priority. What's the priority for the Arabs? The Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. Now, this is a fascinating definition of the conflict. He doesn't say the Jews want a state, the Arabs want a state, and they, you know we're not going to sure we're not sure where to draw the borders. He right. says the Jews right. want a state, and the Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. Right. By definition, irreconcilable. Uh, and by the way, the best predictor of the behavior of the sides ever saw ever since. This is why the Jews say yes to partition, why the Arabs say no. So this is basically the narrative. As far as the Jews are concerned, in 1948, they fought to secure their legitimate rights to have a sovereign state in part of the land based on the United Nations proposal of partition between a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Arabs, from their perspective, are fighting against uh, an idea that they view entirely illegitimate. They, they reject partition because from their perspective, having an Arab state in part of the land, if the other part is going to be given to the Jews, is just not a legitimate proposal. And, uh, and as a result, they say the Jews have no business having a state in any borders. From their perspective, it's entirely illegitimate. These are foreigners who are claiming land that they believe is exclusively theirs. And therefore, they go to war. And that's what the war is about. Right. So sticking with 1948, th there was the war and Israel was not destroyed and established itself in as a country. Uh, and this is right after World War II. So sort of still setting up the stage here. We saw mass refugees and empires fall. Nation states emerged. There were millions of refugees from Europe and then India, sort of give us a picture of why UNRWA, which is the refugee uh, organization set up by the UN for the Palestinian refugees, was set up, especially when there was the United Nations High Commission of Refugees that was set up right before it and took care of all the other refugees in the world. So there's a very short, simple way to understand the 20th century politically. We begin the 20th century when much of the world is divided between empires, and we end the 20th century when much of the world is divided between nation states. Right. This process of imperial collapse, the Ottoman, the Russian, the British, the French, uh, the Austro-Hungarian, all these empires are co uh, collapsing and are replaced by nation states. This is a bloody process. It involved two world wars, numerous uh, regional wars, and as a result of all these wars where different peoples and nations are fighting to secure their independence and their lands and their borders in the wake of these collapsing empires, this process also leads to tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of refugees. You mentioned, for example, the partition of the Indian subcontinent between India and Pakistan, millions of refugees, 
right. go across the partition line. Uh, this happens across Europe, very relevant for at the moment. Ukrainians and Poles and Germans and Bulgarians and Italians, uh, Greeks and Turks, many, many, many people become refugees across the 20th centuries. They do not remain refugees today because the message during the 20th century to these tens of millions of people was a harsh message. The message was tragic, tough, move on. And that's right. it. And people moved on with the tragedies, understanding that looking back is going to be recipe for perpetual war. So a UN body is established, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, to help refugees settle in their new places and not to look back. And it's a very successful organization. You do not have today refugees from the wars of the 1940s. Now, in some uh, local conflicts, such as ours, or in Korea, which happens at about the same time, temporary agencies are established with the intent of settling the refugees within a few short years. So UNRWA is established to settle the Arab refugees from the conflict. Israel obviously settles the Jewish ones. Uh, Ankara is established to settle the Korean refugees from the conflict in Korea. Ankara uh, settles 2 million Korean refugees, so three times the number of the Arabs. It does so in a few short years. It does so for less the budget than UNRWA, and it's dismantled. It does its job. And look at where South Korea is today. And those Korean refugees do not go back. They do not sit on the... Um, 38th parallel, seething, demanding back their lands. Right. They move on and they make South Korea into an amazing country. The Arabs of the land, later to be known as the Palestinians, reject any notion that they should move on. And it's not just their leaders. It's the people reject the notion that they should move on because from their perspective, they may have lost the battle of 1948, but they have not conceded the war against the establishment of a Jewish state. In right. their mind, this is an unacceptable outcome that they should still undo. And they forced the West to keep UNRWA alive as a temporary organization. UNRWA is still a temporary organization after 70 years. And to keep alive the idea for generations of refugees that the war of 1948 is still open. Right. And just to, your book has so much great history in it. It was, I think everybody, if they haven't read it, they need to go and read it because it's, it talks a lot about what was happening um, and the history of the land and what was going on at the time in the UN and with the war. But I think just to give people a little bit more background, uh, and I think the narrative might be important here. You know, Palestinians feel that they were you know, ethnically cleansed from the land, right? That this is a war intentionally made to, to you know, remove them from this territory. And I think that's something important, I think, that needs to be clarified. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, what really happened? Like we're seeing now with Ukraine, there's a war going on and there's 500,000 refugees within five days. Obviously, Russia, I mean, maybe their intention is to rid Ukraine of all Ukrainians. I don't think that's necessarily what's going on here, but people flee in wars. So why was, you know, why is this some sort of narrative out there that this war is different and this one was about, you know, there shouldn't be, there wouldn't have been any refugees if Israel, you know, wasn't just trying to ethnically cleanse the land. 
So this is an idea that developed later as they were trying to win their case on the international stage. But if you read their declarations in real time, and one of the most important things about this conflict is to read what people wrote and said in real time. Right. Uh, for example, one of the most amazing document is the document that actually coined the term, the Nakba, the catastrophe. Today, like you said, when people think about it, they think about this dispossession and so-called ethnic cleansing. In real time, the term, the catastrophe, the Nakba, coined by a Palestinian said this. It opened as follows. Seven Arab armies attempted to subdue Zionism and went home impotent. So they were very clear about themselves not being some innocent bystanders who were like forced out by the Jews. They were very clear that they mobilized seven armies to try to prevent the establishment of a Jewish state and they failed. And the second half of the article, by the way, is how to do better next time. It's not about like, oh, we're, you know, we're, it's so sad. Um, so that was not in real time. To the credit of the Arabs, in real time, they made it very clear that they think that the Jews should not have a state, that it's uh, a shameful idea, and that they will fight to prevent it with everything they have. Right. Only after they lost and they saw that Israel's becoming established and they're not able to undo it militarily, right? They said we should do better next time. Next time was 1967. They did even worse. So they began a campaign uh, for uh, minds and hearts. They began a public campaign to turn Israel and Zionism into basically this evil thing that is illegitimate, hoping to achieve the goals that they failed to achieve by war through basically international condemnations and the isolation of Israel, uh, something that you are fighting. Right, right. And sort of rewriting that narrative and acting like words where they vowed to throw the Jews into the sea. I guess they, they, they try to rewrite the narrative. They never said or made some statements like that. Um, in terms of the, ref the Palestinian refugees, uh, how many were there after 1948? And where were they located? And I guess, where are they located still? Uh, so the numbers fluctuate, but generally about 700,000 is agreed as the number of people who became refugees. And again, like you said, most of them fled in the course of war. Very few, the minority towards the end of the war, uh, are uh, basically expelled as part of several military operations. Uh, 700,000, they flee to the West Bank, which comes under Jordanian occupation and annexation to the Gaza Strip that goes under military occupation by the Egyptians. Uh, and that's the majority. So that's about 80% of them. And the rest flee to Lebanon and Syria. Uh, and they all demand basically to continue the war and they refuse to settle because they understand that the moment that they settle, the moment that they move on, the war will be over, and they refuse to acknowledge that the war is over. Uh, so those are the numbers. Today, as a result of the fact that Palestinians uniquely among refugee pal uh, populations are allowed to just indefinitely and without any kind of uh, checking to generation after generation call themselves refugees, Today, we reach a number of 5.7 million 
uh, who call themselves refugees, but they're not refugees by any international standard because right. about 40% of them live in the West Bank and Gaza. Almost all of them have been born in the West Bank and Gaza. They have not been displaced by war. So they live in Palestine. They were born in Palestine and yet they call themselves refugees from Palestine, right. which makes no sense unless you understand their idea that they're refugees from the Palestine, from the river to the sea that will replace Israel. Another 2.2 million, another 40% are citizens of Jordan. It's important to know that Jordan naturalized all the refugees, gave them citizenship, because Jordan actually was willing to make peace with Israel. And there again, you see those who wanted to make peace did not keep the refugees as refugees. They naturalized them because they understood that this is how you make peace. You move forward, not backward. Uh, but that's why King Abdallah was assassinated by a Palestinian who did not want the Jordanian king to end the war with Israel. Uh, but to the present day, Palestinians in Jordan are citizens. They were born in Jordan. They were not displaced by war. Nowhere in the world are citizens of a country born in that country, somehow refugees uh, of a place in which they've never been. So right. again, by any international standard, they're not refugees. Also, in terms of the image, you're people who deal with images. Uh, they live in nice houses, most of them. They're middle class. Some of them are wealthy business right. people. So the idea of a refugee is more a matter of identity and history rather than present conditions. And then the remaining 20% are officially listed uh, in Syria and Lebanon, about a million. We know from recent data that most of them have actually left. So one of my favorite examples is that uh, the multi-millionaire uh, LA playboy father of supermodels Gigi and Bella Hadid Right. Is I mean, he's not a refugee by any standard, and yet he's still listed on Onra's books as a refugee because he was born in Syria. So we need to understand that the refugee issue for Palestinians is the most important in their mindset, in their identity. But in practice, it's a very minor issue because there are very few people who really need to be settled or to get citizenship several hundreds of thousands of stateless Palestinians living in Lebanon and Syria, that's the extent of the problem. We don't have a problem in Jordan. We don't have a problem in the West Bank and Gaza. So it's a small issue in practice. It's a huge issue in terms of narrative and identity. Right, right. I mean, and then you, so you had the UNHRC who is tasked with maybe 20 million plus refugees at the end of World War II. All of them has been settled. And then you have UNRWA, which was tasked with 700,000, and you're saying now that's ballooned to 5.7 million. So clearly, what they have not done the job they were set up to do, if that was even the job they were really set up to do. Um, but before, I guess, maybe talking about that, let's just define this right of return. What, what does it mean? And where do the Palestinians get the idea that they have the right of return because the Palestinian argument is that Israel continues to deny the Palestinian refugees displaced in these wars and their descendants the right to return to their homes, which they claim has been widely recognized under international human rights law. They say the right of return 
to one's country is guaranteed under international law. And they point to, you know, United Nations General Assembly resolutions and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So just talking about, uh, you know, international law and, and where they believe that they have this right and where they get this right from. Okay. So uh, the palace, as you correctly said, the Palestinians believe, and this is in many ways the broadest, deepest consensus in Palestinian society, which no one challenges. Uh, they believe that they possess a right uh, that supersedes Israeli sovereignty to settle within Israeli territory. So not in the West Bank and Gaza, as I said, 2.2 million live in the West Bank and Gaza, but they believe they have the right to settle within Israel in what we call the pre-1967 ceasefire lines. The numbers are such that this is the mechanism by which Israel is transformed into a Jewish minority country rather than a Jewish majority country. And this is how the idea is how to achieve the goal of 1948 of right. no Jewish state in any borders. Now, international law is uh, not something that's like there's a law and it's been the same for like the past 500 years. It's a series of treaties and interpretations that have developed over time. Um, so there is no right of return for the Palestinians into the sovereign state of Israel. That's very clear and very simple. They do not possess that right. Uh, the state of Israel is established after the fall of empires. Uh, the idea of people having the right to return to their country is again, one of many interpretations, but it's very clear that Israel is not their country. And this is something that develops much later. It's also not a collective right to the extent that it's viewed as a right. It's a more individual right of citizens of existing countries, not something that happens in the transition from empires to nation states. Um, so that right does not exist. As Palestinian scholars try to create that right by referring to, to things that, for example, happened after 1948. International law is not retroactive. Like I said, throughout the 20th century, the general message is, tough, but move on. And when people left territories that became new countries, those were not considered their countries. Right. Um, so there's no right collectively for Palestinians or individually to settle within the state of Israel in its territory in breach of Israel's sovereignty. Such a right simply does not exist. Uh, the international system is based generally on the sanctity of sovereign states. Uh, the notion that a group, a collective, has the right to settle in another state is not something that exists in international law. Right. And, you know, other groups, uh, Cypriots uh, in Turkey, tried to go to international tribunals to claim such right to discover that it didn't exist for them and they had even a better claim. If Palestinians truly had a right of return rather than making it, again, a narrative and identity, it would have been tested. They would have gone to international courts to claim it. There's a reason they don't claim right. it on an international court because they know they have no case that stands 
under real international law. Right. And you know, the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 194, I think people, it's important for them to understand that those are non-binding. It's not a Security Council resolution. Uh, the Arabs rejected it. And the Arabs refused to recognize Israel leaving live up to the terms of the provision themselves. And it's interesting that now the something that they rejected, they didn't want to live up to. Uh, it doesn't say anything about a right. It doesn't say anything about descendants is what they sort of use to try and uh, um, justify this this right to to, you know, resettle, you know, the land of Israel. Um, and just talking about the idea of, of you know, being settled after, you know, after we talked about, you know, United Nations High Commission, that was really what they were charged to do was, was settle people. UNRWA's mission made no reference to settle refugees, right? There was no... Uh, uh, something built into when UNRWA was established saying, we're going to settle them wherever we can, or, or was there? There was, there was basically uh, the idea that UNRWA should do several things. They should try to settle them. UNRWA was mostly focused on trying to just give them uh, economic opportunity, dignity in the places where uh, to which they fled and definitely settling them was one of its mandates. Uh, one of the things that UNRWA somehow uh, transformed over time is to ignore that part of its mandate, which exists, okay. and to claim that the only way that Palestinians can no longer be refugees, even though, again, they're not really refugees, is through this idea of return for Israel. Uh, this is something that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees doesn't do. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees seeks to end the refugee status of people who have fled uh, war situations. There are several mechanisms of ending a refugee status. One of them, of course, is for people to return to their countries, but equally valid, and that's important, equally valid is to settle in the places to which they're fled or in third countries. And the UN High Commissioner for Refugees doesn't sit around for 70 years saying these people should return, and this is not even their country, to the territory from which they fled that then became another country. The UNHCR doesn't do that. We show many cases in the book where after several years, when the UNHCR understands that these people are not returning to their countries, it moves on. It just says, okay, let's try to find them other solutions because the idea is to end the refugee status, whereas UNRWA has become an organization that is devoted to perpetuating an old war. Right. I, you know, you talk in your book about how some people right after 1948 did try to settle these refugees and they were basically, you know, shouted down, chased away and, you know, accused uh, of of uh, treason, essentially. And essentially, I, I think what we're talking about here is this is really a political weapon created in 1948, 1949. And the idea is that Israel shouldn't exist and that this 1948 war is still being waged, as you said, and can be undone. And I, there's an interesting quote from, and I'm just going to read it here, from Lieutenant General Alexander Galloway, who was director of UNRWA in Jordan in 1952. And he said, it's perfectly clear that Arab nations do not want to solve the Arab refugee problem. They want to keep it an open sword and as an affront against the United Nations as a weapon against Israel. Arab leaders don't give a damn whether the refugees live or die. So I don't think there could be any clearer statement of really what the intentions were. And so, and this is 1952, so pretty clearly 
pretty soon after this, you know, this mandate was given to UNRWA, we, we see what really was happening here, right? Yes, I mean, the amazing thing about throughout the 50s, uh, UNRWA is really trying uh, to settle the refugees. They're, they're willing to put a lot of money to big uh, public works. As I said, at the same time, UNRWA is operating in Korea with the same model, and this is what they want to achieve. But they have no cooperation. They have no cooperation from the Arab states, and they have also no cooperation from the Arab refugees themselves who don't want to move on. So it's not just a leaders manipulating people, it's a complete consensus. So throughout the 50s, uh, it's very clear that UNRWA is useless. Again, it's not as if anyone has any questions about it. It's clear that UNRWA is useless and it cannot achieve its goal of allowing the refugees to move on because the refugees don't want to move on. So what happens is that the Western funders of UNRWA, at this point, mostly the US and the UK, want to close UNRWA. They see that UNRWA did a job. UNRWA was successfully closed after achieving its goals. They see that UNRWA is useless, so they want to close UNRWA because it's just a bottomless pit. Right. Um, and then what happens is that the Arab world basically threatens the West to keep UNRWA open, basically telling them, you allowed the war of 1948 open uh, to happen because uh, you supported partition. Don't make that mistake again. It's almost a mob-like scene uh, from right. The Godfather, and we uh, show it in the book, where they're basically telling them, you don't want to make that mistake. And the West at this point, the end of the 50s, has different goals. It's the Cold War. They're afraid that the Arab world and their refugees might become Soviet uh, lackeys. There's oil, which is becoming a big issue. They don't want to fight with the Arab world. It's the Eisenhower doctrine. So they basically say, let's just keep this UNRWA thing open. It's useless. We know it's useless, but it's peanuts in terms of money uh, compared to oil and the Cold War and all that. And from that moment on, the Western funding of UNRWA became, becomes basically like protection money, the money you pay to your local mobster so right. that, you know, but that's it. And you pay it like a regular tax. And no one questions UNRWA from that moment. It becomes just this inertia. Uh, and that brings us pretty much uh, to the present where the West just keeps funding UNRWA. Right. But then UNRWA is transformed because what are you going to do now? The organization needs to keep operating. It's not going to achieve its goals of settling the refugees. So it basically becomes transformed by the Arab refugees themselves into an Arab-Palestinian organization run by Palestinians for Palestinians, mostly focusing on education. And the amazing thing, and I think for me, that, that was one of the most amazing chapters and research parts of our book, is to really show the role that the UNRWA schools had in the 60s in creating a Palestinian right. identity focused on the idea of return and revenge. Right. And I think that is something that was uh, really eye-opening in your book, that the Palestinians... Uh, in these, you know, that were considered refugees, considered themselves Arabs, right? Or maybe Jordanians or maybe Egyptians. There wasn't really a sense of we are Palestinian, we're our own people. And it was these camps, these refugee camps, as you're talking about now, that really, um, you know, established them as their own identity, correct? Exactly. 
in many ways, the book unintentionally answered the question of when and how the Palestinian people were created. Right. Uh, the connection between nation building and education is Nationalism 101. And we really show how the UNRWA schools created the sense of a separate Palestinian identity, separate from the Egyptian or the Syrian or the Lebanese or the Jordanian one, which is where they fit before that. It becomes a separate identity and that identity coalesces around the idea of return and revenge, that to be a Palestinian is to believe in this idea of return and to revenge the so-called great injustice of the establishment of the state of Israel. Right, right. And also just to talk a little bit about narrative and this infusing of this narrative now, you know, the Palestinian peoplehood. And I think you touched on this a little bit before this idea that this narrative of refugees and you think of people living in squalor, living in tent camps, you know, no bathrooms. Isn't that part of this war of return, this image to sort of play on their refugees and, you know, these essentially are are cities now that they live in. They're not these camps that they sort of portray them to be, right? So, of course, much of the idea of being a refugee is to maintain that imagery. Again, the notion that we're still stuck in 1948 and we have just escaped the war, even though the person carrying that refugee card is a lawyer living in Ramallah, Uh, and he's 30 years old and he's never been displaced by war. Now, first of all, the vast majority of the 5.7 million registered as refugees by UNRWA don't live in camps. More than 80% of the ones in Jordan don't live. They live in the cities, as I said, middle-class, some of them wealthy. They don't even live in camps. Uh, Nearly 80% in the West Bank don't live in camps. So first of all, the vast majority don't even live there. They've left uh, to just lead normal lives but still keeping the refugee identification. In Gaza and Lebanon, about 50% still live in camps. But like you said correctly, those camps have by now become uh, neighborhoods, some of them okay, some of them slums, but they're not makeshift tents open to the winds of people who have just fled war, which is what the image of a refugee is. There you have more people living uh, in these uh, neighborhoods, uh, refugee uh, refugee neighborhoods. And I think it's no accident, and we make the case in the book, that Gaza and Lebanon have been the source of the greatest friction and wars with Israel, because those are the people that are most maintained in this idea and ideology that they are refugees waiting to take back so-called a land that they believe is exclusively theirs. Right. And in Lebanon, the the Palestinians are barred from 70 odd jobs. They're not allowed to vote. They have no civic rights, civil rights. And uh, I mean, I guess if we're this narrative apartheid, if we're talking apartheid, you have people that have been born in, in Lebanon, their parents were born in Lebanon, and they're still barred from having any rights whatsoever just to keep alive this idea this, this political weapon of this right of return. Exactly. Um, and there are Arabs and, you know, some of them literally fled a few kilometers south of the border with Lebanon. Many right. of them were like agricultural seasonal workers. And suddenly they have this separate identity and the Lebanese refuse integration. And like you're saying, under very harsh conditions. 
And, and I think the other narrative that you always hear is, you know, the, these people were there for a thousand years. Everybody was there for a thousand years. And just going, I don't know if you know this part of history, but it's always interesting to me when you hear that sort of thing of, um, you know, my, I've had these keys in my family's land. But I mean, you also read the stories of how Jews came into the, you know, the land of, 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 of Israel or back then, you know, part of the Ottoman Empire and uh, these unlivable swamps that they had to drain. The British came in after they took control and started building the territories and the infrastructure. So what is the truth? I'm not sure if that was covered in the book or not about, you know, all these 700,000 refugees living there for millions of years. So one of the things that uh, we, we explain in the book is that, again, this is war. Uh, when we wrote the book, we also felt that we needed to ex remind people what war is like. I mean, now we don't, but, you know, the sense is that people don't even know what war is like, how refugees are created in the course of war. It's mayhem. It's a mess. It's so, as I said, even the numbers are not clear. Uh, people were registered. It wasn't clear where they come from. As I said, they could have been seasonal workers from Lebanon who were there for a few months and then escaped and then became registered with UNRWA. So there was a lot of uh, just, as we say in Hebrew, balagan at the beginning, just a whole big mess. And it's not very clear who each person was and where they came from. We know that as uh, there was building of the pre-Israel day of the Yeshuv days, there was a lot of also Arab immigration because there were no borders at the time. This is uh, the British control. There's trains that go from uh, Beirut to Haifa to Jaffa. I mean, it's like people go across the empire where there's economic opportunity. The notion of uh, this idea of rootedness in the land, the, where there's no quite immigration, the Arabs have always been there and only them, is one that again was established as an antidote to the idea that the Jews are invading foreigners that have no connection to the land. Um, and what's amazing, again, until the early part of the 20th century, all Arab scholars, historians, medieval historians recognize the Jewish connection to the land. But at that moment, the Jews are a defeated small people. So there's no problem recognizing, of course, that connection. It's only when the Jews wanted to do something about it that you have the beginning of a long campaign of denying the connection and claiming that there's only one people who are rooted, who have claims and who belong to this land. Right. Even in the Quran, it speaks about the Jews and their attachment to the land. And I think that goes to, you know, some of the stumbling blocks to peace, which this right of return really has been. Um, as you were just discussing now, like Palestinians trying to define the Jews in Israel, they're settler colonials, they're foreigners, Europeans, and not wanting to come to terms that Jews have nowhere to go. They are indigenous to the land of Israel. They're not the French Algerians. Um, and Palestinians really have not been willing to engage on this issue at all. Um, it seems that, you know, that, that they're, they're certain that Jews, and, and I guess they ingrain in these UNRWA schools, that Jews will eventually pack up and leave the country like Afrikaners in South Africa. And isn't that probably one of the more, uh, you know, stum bigger stumbling blocks than, than anything else? Yes. Uh, I mean, our focus on the idea of the right of return and the refugees was actually really a prism through which you understand the fundamental conflict 
by which, again, if we go back to Bedouin, from the Arab perspective, the Jews have no business being there, period. And from their perspective, uh, they're buying time. And like you said, the Jews will go. So over the decades, the Jews were compared to the French in Algeria, like you said, uh, to the Ottomans, to the Crusaders. That's a very big comparison. Uh, and recently, for example, to the Americans in Afghanistan, anything that will convey that the Jewish presence, or at least the Jewish sovereign presence, is temporary. And because it's temporary, you do not compromise with the presence you believe is temporary because you work on throwing them out rather than uh, reaching an arrangement with them. Right. Uh, reaching an arrangement could only happen once you accept their permanence and their legitimacy as equal claimants. So absolutely, this is the big stumbling block. And this is why the conflict has lasted for a century. I call the conflict a battle of mutual exhaustion, where basically the Jew, the Arabs are trying to exhaust the Jews into leaving, into right. saying, okay, you know what? There's wars, terrorism, international condemnations. Like, we don't want this. We're out of here. And, right. in, and throughout the decades, they sometimes think they're winning. They're saying, look, the, the Jews are demoralized and they're not going to fight. And all we just need to wait another generation, another three generations, they'll go. Right. And, and I think in the Right. And I think in the West, you know, Palestinians, you know, leaders have convinced people that the stumbling block to peace is the settlements. The focus is always on the settlements. But Israel dismantled 11 when they pulled out of Sinai in exchange for peace. It dismantled 19 when it left Gaza in 2008 and 2000 uh, with Barak and Omer. They offered to pull out settlements and there was also some land swaps. So it's not settlements that are the stumbling block. It has always been this right of return, right? And as you know, Omar Bergadi says, it's, you know, we want a Palestine next to a Palestine. And the reason Arafat and uh, Abbas turned down deals, it wasn't because of settlements. It really was because of this right of return. Yeah. Uh, this is how a DNI came to write the book because we saw uh, Ehud Barak and later Ehud Olmert put on the table proposals that check the boxes of what we were told the stumbling blocks were. So the occupation, well, Palestine was going to be an independent state in the West Bank and Gaza, ending Israel's military presence. So if we're told the occupation is the problem, that was going to end. And there were going to be no settlements. Like you said, they were going to be either dismantled or exchanged for equivalent land. Jerusalem was going to be divided as a capital. Uh, so the Palestinians were going to have a capital, including in the old city and holy sites. So all the things that we are fed as being the stumbling blocks, we saw as Israelis proposals that removed those obstacles. And then we saw Palestinian leaders, Arafat in 2000, Abu Mazen in 2008, walk away from those. And that led us for, to ask a very simple question. What do the Palestinians want? And what do they want more than ending the occupation, no settlements in Jerusalem? There's clearly something they want more if they're walking away from the opportunities to achieve those things. And that's when we realized that it was hiding in plain sight. The Palestinians, to their credit, have said it all along from the 1920s on, from the river to the sea. The Jews are not legitimate. They have been, to their credit, consistent. 
You know, the, the only times we've sort of seen a break in that is Mahmoud Abbas in 2012 interviews said, you know, Palestine now for me is the 67 borders alongside the state of Israel. And there was a poll conducted by a Palestinian pollster in 2003, and he, he polled around 4,500 families, and I think a, a good majority of them stated uh, that, you know, they didn't believe or, or didn't, you know, were, were okay with compensation compared to returning to Israel. And then subsequently, that pollster, I think, was threatened with his life, and that poll was erased from memory. But, you know, so who is demanding this right of return? And how do we overcome that? Or is it possible to overcome that? Like, who are these forces that are shutting down people like this from even talking about it? So one of the things that we saw is that, like you said, there are no voices speaking about it. Uh, you know, there's there's no op ads, the, a small NGO, something, someone that will just say, look, people, enough is enough. Let's move on. It's just not worth it. Let's focus on building a state next to Israel rather than instead of it. But the amazing thing is that when Abu Mazen, for example, tried to at least say, and he was very careful at how he phrased it, he said, I personally don't expect to return to Tzfat, where he was born. So he made it very clear that this is his personal choice. But then he immediately made it clear that this does not negate the right. And as the Palestinian mythology uh, builds, each Palestinian has this right individually, and the right cannot be negotiated away. And ironically, it is the son and grandson of Mahmoud Abbas who took to YouTube to say, our father may, or grandfather might not be returning to Tzfat, but we are. And they're the ones who weren't born there. Um, so there are no voices in Palestinian society who are challenging this issue at all. Right. Because it is fundamental to Palestinian identity. How does this change? And I believe it can change, not easily. Uh, it will take at least a generation, uh, but it will take at least a generation from the moment that Palestinians accept that the war is over and they need to move on. It can't happen now where they still think that the war of 1948 is an open case and could be won to their cause. And in the book, as an optimistic case, we bring the case of the German refugees after World War II who were brutally expelled from Poland uh, into Germany. And, in, and they wanted return. Uh, they even had a word for it in uh, German, Heimkehr. Um, but it took a generation for Chancellor Willy Brandt to basically sign a peace agreement with Poland, recognizing the new border. And then he gives a speech to the German refugees. And in our book, we say, just cut and paste that speech to a Palestinian leader and we know the conflict is over. And he basically tells the German refugees, it's over, we need to look to the future rather than to the past. Those lands are lost. Um, that's what it looks like. And it took a generation from the moment that the world made it clear to the Germans that the war is over, that they lost and that they need to move on. No one is giving those messages to the Palestinians. Um, if anyone is giving them those messages, amazingly, are some of the new Arab countries in the Gulf that are normalizing with Israel. 
who are basically, I mean, to their credit, the Arab countries of the Gulf, all Arab countries, they know the conflict has never been about settlements or the occupation. They know the conflict has always been about seven Arab armies trying to subdue Zionism. They know the conflict was about the blanket Arab rejection of a Jewish state in any borders. And now when they've decided that they're done with this conflict, they don't want to devote any more resources to eliminating Israel, they're basically telling the Palestinians in no uncertain terms, enough is enough, move on. So ironically, Arab countries are now saying to Palestinians what the West should have said, but doesn't, but still doesn't dare say. Right. So zooming out, we have, you know, almost a half a billion Arabs that were intent on just, you know, eradicating this one state with just 7 million Jews. <clears throat> and I think that's also, you know, I guess it goes back to the narrative of the Palestinian leadership has done a good job of sort of not seeing and not making people zoom out to see what was really happening, especially in the early days with, you know, the Arab world as a whole, before really this Palestinian identity took hold, wanted to eradicate this. And as you said, I think, I mean, maybe the Abraham Accords with now the Arab countries, uh, you know, making peace with Israel and establishing relations with Israel, um, perhaps that, uh, perhaps that can help. Maybe that is the game changer. I don't know how soon, because the Palestinians seem to be lashing out at at those Gulf countries, but but maybe soon that'll that'll change. And, you know, and, and that actually remind, reminds me of something that you talked about in the book too, is Westplaining. Can you talk a little bit about what Westplaining is? Because I think that actually, you know, is very important for people to understand as well. Yes, so Westplaining is a word I uh, coined and introduced in the book, which like mansplaining uh, has the same kind of patronizing attitude of explaining what something is very, what someone else is, clearly capable of saying. Uh, so West Planning is a phenomenon that a DNI have encountered when we met with Western diplomats and journalists. We review, we tell them the right of return is the key issue. And, and then they just West Plain it away. They say th things, sorry, they say things like, oh, this can't be, they're delusional. They know that Israel is not going anywhere. They can't be serious about it. And I always tell them, open a map, just open a map. That's what the Palestinians are doing. They're opening a map. They're zooming out. They see about 7 million Jews surrounded by half a billion Arabs, almost one and a half billion Muslims. And they're telling themselves, this is not going to last like the Crusaders, like the French in Algeria, like this is not going to last. These Jews trying to, to be sovereign in our midst, that's going to go away. So they're not being irrational. They're not being delusional. They're just believing that they could wait us out. And the crusader state la lasted 100 to 200 uh, years. Fine. They, they can wait us out uh, in that time frame, which is why it's so important to have Arab countries be very clear. And again, to the Palestinians, to the Palestinians' credit, they've been very clear all the time, from the river to the sea, and the right of return, and the right of return is, is holy. But, you know, when Palestinians today say from the river to the sea, people say it's an expression. They don't really mean that. Right. Or, sorry, they're just angry about what Netanyahu did yesterday. And I'm like, no, they've been consistent for a century that this is what they mean, uh, and yet so many Westerners don't want to look 
at the issue and they just west plane it away. Right, right. So going to a couple of questions, um, leaving the right of return aside and just talking about UNRWA itself, why hasn't it been shut down? And why is it funded, especially when uh, we've seen it charged with corruption, its leaders charged with corruption, their school books have been shown time and, ag- time and again to preach hatred towards Israel and Jews. So why, and it gets defunded maybe a little bit, European country will withhold money one time or another, then refund it. So why hasn't that entity been shut down, even if we don't, you know, tackle the issue of right of return? And what should replace it? Or does it even need replacing? So as I said, at this point, a big part is inertia. A big part is, again, UNRWA has been very successful at making Westerners believe that it's a humanitarian organization, whereas it's entirely a political organization. Uh, and, and just people don't want to, like, deal with it. Uh, one of the things that's a bit related to West Planning, uh, people in foreign policy want to feel good. They don't necessarily want to do good. And to feel good is to give money to UNRWA that does give schools and that feels good. To do good is to close UNRWA because that's how we can move to peace by finally sending the message that the war of 1948 is over. This this is very basic. If you wanna make peace, you gotta end the war. Uh, And the West is still allowing Palestinians to indulge in the belief that the war is not over. So, Part of it is inertia, part of it is wanting to feel good, part of it is fear of uh, repercussions from the Arab world. And I must say, corruption is, is not the problem here. Sometimes when we meet with Western diplomats, they say, oh, we're working on the corruption issue is, and we're much more on it. And I'm thinking, I seriously am not concerned that an organization devoted to there being no Israel and keeping alive the conflict of 1948, I really don't care if they manage the book be- the books better. Right. That's not what I'm concerned about. Right. Um, and someone writes here, you know, Jews have longed for their homeland. Why should Palestinians give up on this dream? Like, isn't uh, isn't their Zionist dreams the return to the land uh, of you know Palestine or what now is Israel? I wish. Um, because, uh, and I'll unpack it because uh, there's a lot of layers here. Right. But from the Palestinian perspective, return was never an innocent idea. Return was always subjected to the political goal of having no Israel. So it's not like some ancient longing. They lost the war to subdue the Jewish uh, An offensive at sovereignty. war. Right. What? An offensive they war. Lost Yeah, they lost that war and seeking alternative means of continuing the war. One of the means became this idea of return. Uh, For a long time, the main means was uh, the hope for a new war. But as I said, 1967 kind of ended that. Uh, And return became more and more important as the mechanism by which to undo Israel. So it's not some innocent longing for a homeland. And as I said, Uh, at least half of them are living in Palestine. And this is really where you can see the difference between how Jews uh, looked at the idea of sovereignty and how Palestinians looked at it. Yes, one of the parents of the modern state of Israel 
is the ancient longing for Zion. But that's only one of the parents. Two other parents of the modern state of Israel is, first of all, the failure of emancipation, the idea that the Jews need to take care of their own because they can't trust anyone else. And the most important parent is, of course, the rise of the idea of the nation state to replace empires, the idea that people govern themselves instead of empires. Israel and the Jewish people were part of that. And by the way, they were not unique. As the Ottoman Empire disappears, there were going to be states for Jews, for Arabs, for Kurds, for Armenians, for Turks. Um, and when people say, look, uh, Israel's established be because of the longing uh, for Zion, um, there were going to be a state for the Kurds, a state for the Armenians. And yet Ataturk rips the paper, does what he does to the Armenians, does what he does to the Kurds, and they don't get a state. That could have been the fate of the Jews. In, Mar in March 1948, it appears that the Arabs are winning. And at this point, the UK and the US are kind of withdrawing their support uh, because they think the Jews are losing. And a lot of people bet on the Jews losing and they would have said it's sad and there would have been no state of Israel. Now, the Jews longed for Zion, but at the end of the day, they focused on having a state, smaller, bigger, a state sovereignty. If the Palestinians had been Zionists, we would have not had this conflict. If the Palestinians had focused on sovereignty rather than the elimination of Israel, they would have been celebrating independence since May 1948. Next to Israel, there would also not have been a single refugee because the refugees are all the outcome of an entirely unnecessary war. Uh, they could just have said yes to partition, uh, had their state, end of story. So one of the ways, again, that they try to make it is precisely by saying, okay, it's, we're just like the Jews. We are longing for kind of our country. No, if you, and this is why our book emphasizes history. That was never the case. From day one, the idea right. of return was shaped as a way of continuing the war. And in that sense, it has nothing to do with the Jewish longing for Zion. And again, to the credit of the Jews, we established a state on part of the land. It was not about having every square inch. Right. Jews, when accepting the partition plan, accepted that the land of Israel would never be the state of Israel. And I think the Palestinians need to understand that the land of Palestine, as they may see it, cannot be the state of Palestine. And that really is the crux of the problem where Jews have time and time again agreed to that. The Palestinian leadership, unfortunately, has never agreed to that and wanted it all. Um, anyhow, we're at the end of our time. Thank you for joining us today for this really in-depth conversation. Um, I always learn a lot from Anat. Next week, we have a fantastic discussion about the Jewish history and ingenuity of the land of Israel. Um, so everybody won't want to miss that. Make sure to sign up for all our discussions and please donate at ccfpeace.com. That's ccfpeace.com. Uh, before we go, Inat, can you please let everyone know where they can find you on social media? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Inat Wilf. Uh, that's, uh, that's my social media of choice and that's where I'm active. All right. We hope to see everyone online. Everyone be safe. Thank you, Inat. Thank you.